Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Lisa Childers here. Today we're going to talk about a growing movement in the church called the New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR. Some Christians think it's a true move of God, and others, such as my guest today, have deep concerns about its teachings and practices. Others say it doesn't exist at all. We're going to talk about all these questions and try to clear up the confusion on today's podcast. My guest today is Holly Pivik, and she's an expert on a movement called the New Apostolic Reformation. In fact, she's co-authored two books on the subject, and we're going to get into what that's all about in just a minute, but I want to tell you a little bit about her first. So she's a Biola girl. She's got her master's degree in apologetics, and when she was at Biola, she was the managing editor of Biola Magazine. She's been interviewed extensively on this subject by major news outlets, and she has a really great website and a blog, and you can find that at spiritoferror.org, where she blogs kind of extensively about this movement if you want to find out more. So I want to welcome Holly Pivik to the podcast. Holly, thanks so much for being on with me today. Oh, thanks so much, Elisa, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, we're going to get into what this whole thing is about in a moment and kind of what your biggest concerns are regarding this movement. But what's interesting is as I go and travel and sing and teach, often I'll ask people about progressive Christianity, which is sort of the thing I talk a lot about. And people have generally heard of that. Christians have heard of that. But when I bring up the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, generally nobody's heard of it. And yet, when you ask a few more probing questions, you realize that many people are actually really influenced by it without realizing it. I mean, this is a massive movement that nobody's ever heard of. So um, what what is the NAR? Just to kind of give us an overview about what it is, and then we'll get kind of deeper into it from there. Sure, sure. You're right. It's a very large, very fast-growing movement, and it seeks to restore apostles and prophets to the church. Hmm. And these modern-day apostles and prophets claim they have the authority and new revelations that Christians need to see a billion people convert to belief in Christ and to bring God's physical kingdom to earth. And their new revelations are strategies. They say God has given them to bind powerful demons that rule over cities and nations and to work greater miracles than Jesus did, triggering a global revival. And it's interesting to me that you as an apologetics person would choose this movement as a specialty. It's not a typical apologetics topic. So I'm curious, what was it that kind of drew you to, uh, to study it? Well, when I was working at Biola University, as you mentioned, as the managing editor of the magazine, I received an email from one of the readers of the magazine. She was a graduate of Biola. And she was um, hoping to contact a faculty member at Biola 
uh, and hoping to convince maybe a faculty member there to write a book about this movement. And she described it in her message as a very large movement that she basically said was taking over churches in her city. Mm. And she was very concerned about it. Just she was saying there needs to be a biblical response, a credible biblical response to this movement. And as she described this movement, I was really surprised that I had never heard of it before. Um, and, you know, because I researched cults and aberrant movements and had an interest in that. And I, I went online and started digging around. I couldn't believe the amount of information I found about this movement, its leaders, its organizations, the books that had been written, how large and extensive this movement, you know, obviously was, even though in my circles, I hadn't heard of it. Yeah. And so that, that really piqued my interest. And then I started putting things together, learning the language of the movement and realizing that even people, my own friends were caught up in this movement. And before I had no eyes to see that, but after I started digging around, I started seeing signs of the movement all around me when Mm. I hadn't been aware of it before. Mm. And you've written two books on this subject. One is called A New Apostolic Reformation with a question mark, A Biblical Response to a Worldwide Movement, and a second book called God's Super Apostles, Encountering the Worldwide Prophets and Apostles Movement. So uh, where can we buy these books, Holly? Sure, sure. Amazon or Barnes & Noble, um, all the all the regular places. And I co-authored those books with uh, Doug Guyvett, who's a philosophy professor over at Biola. Well, I've read that first one, A New Apostolic Reformation. And I just have to say for the listeners, this is such a great resource. This is well-researched. This is non-alarmist. And what I mean by that is that there are some websites out there that are basically crying out, you know, everybody who disagrees with me is a heretic. And this is not what Holly does. Holly has uh, very thorough research, a very loving and kind uh, demeanor, and it's just a really great book that that you need to get your hands on. So, Holly, you mentioned that uh, they're seeking to restore the offices of apostle and prophet to the church. So, what's the difference between that and what the typical charismatic believes? Well, so in the New Apostolic Reformation or NAR, uh, for short, um, they they insist that apostles and prophets must govern the church. That means they must hold formal governing offices like pastors or elders, except for apostles and prophets are seen as having even much more authority than pastors and elders because pastors and elders are expected to submit to them. Hmm. And also apostles or prophets will typically govern multiple churches, sometimes even thousands of churches in Hmm. some, in some cases. And so their authority is much broader, much far reaching, much deeper than the authority of, um, typical pastor or elder in a church. And so historically, charismatic Pentecostal churches, other churches have been governed by pastors and elders. And what's different with the new apostolic reformation is, is they're saying, no, without apostles and prophets, uh, your church won't have the new revelation that they are authorized uh, by God to bring to the church. And, and so that it's essential that they hold these formal governing offices and all others submit to them so that their new revelations can be received and implemented in the church. So these new revelations, are they viewing them as having the same authority as, say, Scripture, or in practice, is that how it's playing out? What, what's going on with that? So 
Right. So what what they'll say is that Scripture is the highest authority. All things must be tested by Scripture, which is good. That sounds very good. But the problem is that in practice, the the revelations are actually treated on an authoritative par with Scripture. And so what it works out, what it amounts to is that if they give a new revelation that they say doesn't directly contradict something in Scripture, then it's it's fair, <laughs> fair game. And and so even though they're not taking their revelations and physically like appending them to the back of a Bible or something, um, their revelations are seen as uh, very authoritative and people are expected to receive their revelations. And if they don't, they're seen as being uh, outside of God's will and even in rebellion against God. So, so in effect, their revelations are treated, you know, as, as if they are have equal authority to scripture. Yeah. And you know, something that kind of illustrates this is recently I was listening to a sermon from an NAR church and it was just kind of all this wild stuff about spiritual warfare that if you do this, this will happen and you have the power to do such and such. And it was just kind of wild. And, uh, but at the same time, it was very systematic and very well thought out and organized. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, I can't actually go to the Bible and find a verse that says, Hey, don't do this exact thing that she's teaching right now. Uh, but at the same time, nothing she was saying was really from scripture. It was just all this kind of new thing. So by the end though, she'd kind of set it up that if anyone were to disagree with her, uh, there was sort of this implication that it would have to have some kind of a demonic influence. And so is that something you, you encounter? Right, definitely. And, and so whenever somebody gives a revelation and says that all Christians worldwide <laughs> or, or a large segment of the church is expected to receive this revelation and put it into practice or else they are rejecting God and his messengers, the prophets, then, then uh, that is, is to say that that revelation has the authority of Scripture. And yes, people who do not receive the revelations um, are often um, given, um, they're vilified, and so, so they will be called, said they have a Jezebel spirit or religious spirit, which is a really bad thing to be called in this movement. <laughs> it's like saying you're like a Pharisee. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they will be often demonized. And, um, and at the very least, if you don't receive the new revelations, you will not take part in God's end times plans and purposes for the earth and, and bringing about those. And if you oppose the revelations, um, or criticize the apostles and prophets, you are seen as being under the influence of, you know, a very high ranking demon, which they call the corporate spirit of religion. And you mentioned what they believe about the end times. What do they believe about that? So the NER has developed its own eschatology. It's often referred to as a victorious eschatology. And the idea is that they would say that historically, Many evangelical Christians have believed that um, things are going to get worse before Christ returns. And they would say, but in contrast to that, our eschatology is victorious. We see an overcoming, conquering church that will defeat all these demonic principalities that are holding nations in bondage, bind them, and then um, will proceed to set up God's kingdom on earth and, and in fact, Mike Bickle at the International House of Prayer, he's, he's taught extensively about eschatology. And he will say that the plagues described in the book of Revelation um, 
uh, will actually be judgments that that um, through their miraculous powers, the NAR adherents through their miraculous powers will call down these judgments on God's enemies, the Antichrist and his kingdom. Wow. Uh, so, so they'll increase in miraculous powers until they develop them to such a capacity that they are able to call down these end-time plagues on, on God's enemies. Wow. So, so it seems there's a real emphasis on the miraculous, on miracles. Do you think that's a kind of a fair thing to say? Oh, definitely. The, the idea that the... That's probably almost the primary thrust of this movement is that that uh, the church is supposed to develop greater miraculous powers than even Jesus had. Uh, that's based on their understanding of John fourteen twelve, where Jesus said, you know, to his disciples, "You'll do even greater works than I did." Basically, that's a paraphrase. And so they'll say that the church will continue to grow in miraculous power until. Um, through their powers, they can defeat Satan, and unbelievers will be so awed by these miraculous powers that it will result in this massive global revival where a billion people will convert to belief in Christ. Hmm. So we've talked about kind of what this movement is, what it's about, what it what it basically teaches. Let's move on to who who are some of the key players, the leaders in this movement, and the churches that are promoting these these teachings, and how is it showing up in the body of Christ? Well, two of the uh, most well known organizations today uh, that promote the, this movement are Bethel Church in Redding, California, led by the Apostle Bill Johnson and the Prophet Chris Vallotton. And then uh, uh, the International House of Prayer, uh, led by Mike Bickle. And and beyond that, though, uh, Lou Engle, uh, with the call, he leads these prayer and fasting uh, events in large stadiums throughout the United States. He's a big player. Uh, Cindy Jacobs with Generals International. Um, Randy Clark with Global Awakening. Rick Joyner with Morningstar Ministries. These are all some of the uh, big names, but... These are apostles and prophets who really are known um, nationally or even internationally. But but in addition to these prophets and apostles, there's many more, um, thousands more worldwide who um, aren't maybe known nationally, but they have seen, you know, they govern like multiple churches in, in various, like the Pacific Northwest or, or different regions, basically. So you mentioned Bethel Redding. Now, they're the ones that are recording all the worship music and sending that out, and everybody's singing their songs in their churches on, on Sunday mornings. That's right. So Bethel Music and, and then Jesus Culture, which came out of Bethel Church, you know, their music is wildly popular. Like you said, sung in even in many non-denominational uh, churches today that don't promote NAR teachings. But I well, um, may not even be aware of any teaching. Exactly, exactly. But the lyrics, the lyrics, you know, they they they'll see different meaning in the lyrics than than um, maybe someone who's in the NAR and understand that they're you know imbued with additional meaning. Exactly, and you know, I've been giving this whole thing a lot of thought lately, and I've noticed something with people I talk to, and even just conversations I've observed and things people have said about uh, NAR churches is one thing that will come up is people will say, 
you know, people say all this stuff about Bethel Church. There's this wacky videos on the internet. But, you know, when you actually go there, that's not what it's about. You would see, if you would just go there and experience it, you would see that it's different than that. But I noticed, Holly, from your website that you actually go to a lot of NAR meetings and church services. You actually experience those things for yourself. So I'm curious to know, what is your general experience when you attend an NAR church uh, on a typical Sunday morning? Right. Well, it can vary. So if you go to a church, there are about 3 million people in the United States who attend churches that are formally governed by apostles and prophets. So these are churches that have said, we formally uh, come under the authority of an apostle, mm-hmm. and this will be our apostolic covering. covering. So in these churches, uh, if you go to a service, they will often be much more explicit in um, in saying, you know, we believe that you're supposed to follow apostles, submit to their authority, mm-hmm. uh, receive everything the prophets say. They're they're very explicit in their teachings. Um, but beyond these churches that are formally governed by apostles and prophets, you have uh, many millions more who are attending Pentecostal and Charismatic churches where these teachings have entered in in varying degrees. And so these churches, you know, it might be an Assemblies of God church that formerly the Assemblies of God denomination has denounced many of these teachings. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't accept that apostles and prophets are to govern the church. But you may have a pastor of an Assemblies of God church who invites apostles or prophets to come in and speak, gives them the platform, People in the church are studying books written by these apostles and prophets, uh, like you mentioned, singing the music. Um, and so if you go to, say, Bethel Church, you know, I, I went out recently and visited, uh, fairly recently, and visited Bethel Church in Redding, California. If you go to the main service, you didn't hear really much about apostles or prophets in that main service, although it was generally understood that the people on stage were apostles and prophets. Mm-hmm. Um but but they weren't really they weren't preaching from the pulpit follow the apostles and prophets they do that sometimes but not every sunday morning but if you went to the adult sunday school class uh that took place right near the service there this is their flagship sunday school class there was all kinds of <laughs> craziness going on in that classroom i mean pe- people were being told uh that they needed to get drunk in the spirit and were falling on the floor and and acting drunk. And, um, and then they, at the same class, they were telling people that they were going to teach them how to prophesy. And so they were calling people up to the front of the room and advising them just to say whatever came out of their mouth. Mm. And that would be a prophetic word for somebody in the room. And, and so, so maybe somebody would attend the main service at Bethel Redding and go, Oh, that just seemed like kind of like a charismatic church, not too far out there. But if you dig a little deeper, go to some of their classrooms where they go deeper into their teachings, you will see uh, more of that. So as far as those deeper teachings, you know, theologically speaking, for the listeners that may not be fully grasping, you know, what is concerning you so much about this, what is so concerning about having apostles and prophets in the church? Well, uh, so so in, in the Bible, you know, in the New Testament, the requirement to be an apostle was that someone had walked with Christ throughout his entire earthly ministry and had been a witness to his resurrection. And, and that was the requirement for the, uh, the 12 apostles, even including Judas's replacement. 
And, and then Paul, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, he explains that, that he was like one untimely born. He was an apostle, just like those 12 were, but he was a, appointed a little out of, out of, a little later, but he said he was an exception. And so these, these apostles as eyewitnesses of, um, Christ's earthly ministry and as witnesses to his resurrection were to bear witness, to, to testify to what Jesus taught hmm. and what he said and what he did. And, and so that these things could be recorded in scripture and people could have confidence that what was recorded, uh, was, was, what Jesus actually taught and said and did, because it was, it was written by eyewitnesses, um, to Jesus. And, and so they were seen as having unique authority in the church because of their eyewitness status and, and their special, um, commissioning directly by Christ to be called. And, and so for people to come today and, and claim that they are apostles in, in like, say the sense of, of the 12 or Paul is, is to say that, that they have this unique authority to give revelation to the church, even though they were not eyewitnesses to Jesus and his teachings. And so, <laughs> and so you can't have the confidence that, that this is actually what Jesus said or did or taught. Um, right. Right. So let's dive a little bit deeper into this theologically. So I came from a charismatic tradition. I would still consider myself a continuationist, somebody who believes that the gifts of the Spirit, all the gifts of the Spirit have continued, that those gifts did not cease uh, in somewhere in the first century. So uh, you made a very important distinction that not every charismatic believes in this idea of authoritative apostles and prophets for today. So what would be the difference between uh, somebody calling themselves a prophet and simply giving a prophetic word, like what would that look like from a continuationist's perspective? Right. So, so historically, a charismatic would believe that that there is a miraculous gift of prophecy that that God has given to some people, and um, but in the NAR, they'll say there is also in addition to that there is an office of prophet. It's a formal office. And this prophet, because of their their um, vast amount of authority they have, are able not just to give words that edify and encourage, but they they give directives, specific prophecies uh, to individuals, to churches, and they they um, these words they can guide individuals on uh, decisions like who to marry, where to live, where to work. They they give directive words to churches about what steps the churches should take. Um, you know, maybe who to hire or fire or what their, the course of action they should be pursuing. And these words are seen as, uh, that you must obey their words. If somebody just has the gift of prophecy, they would say, you don't, you don't have to obey their words. They might be, uh, they're, they might be more mistaken than someone in the office, but if it's someone in the office, you better obey their words because these are mouthpieces for God. And, and they will say too, that someone in the office can make an error, error in prophecy and still be a true prophet. That's another issue, yeah. but they are seen as, um, but you better, you better obey their words, um, or else, uh, be in danger of being outside of God's, uh, will and blessing. Yeah, man, that's really scary, isn't it? It's a, it's like they can be wrong, but you still have to obey them. Right. That's a fair, <laughs> right. That, that's, that's, and, and people have been hurt because of, because yeah. of that, you know, um, 
people will obey their words and follow their words. And I can give specific examples, but, but people, real harm comes to the life of individuals. And so these prophets claim that they have this high level of authority, but they're not held to a high level of accountability like the Old Testament prophets were. And so, so they want it both ways. Right. Well, why don't you go ahead and give one of those examples, because I'm sure there's somebody listening who's saying, you know, maybe I am seeing some of this at my church, but maybe giving some kind of a concrete idea of how this is actually going to play out or how it has played out. I'm sure you've you've been contacted by people who have uh, experienced some of this. Well, one, I, I know of one couple who um, there, there's a prophet who... Um, who many people in their, their town would fly this prophet in anytime they need to make any big decisions, um, make any business decisions. So this couple is very influential in this community and they, um, they bring this prophet to their town who, who basically tells them to, to pursue a, a business course of action, um, to develop this big, um, kind of housing to, to, housing development. Mm -hmm. And, um, so they followed what he said and, and then right after that, that's when the economy tanked back around, I think like 2008 and, and their, the development just completely failed and (laughs) they haven't been able to recover from that since then. But, but they obeyed the words of the prophet who told them, yeah, God's behind this. He's going to use all the money you make from this to, grow his kingdom. And, and so that's one example. Another example, very high profile example was back around Y2K year 2000, the prophet Rick Joyner, who's very influential in this movement was telling people that there was going to be like this, he said like big earthquake in California and everybody needed to get out and well, they could. And so people moved, they actually picked up their homes and lives and moved and, um, you know, that, that's actually reported on in Charisma magazine, um, which is actually a big promoter of this movement, but, but they report on, on some of the fallout there. So speaking of fallout, you know, when these teachings and these practices sort of are played out, how does this affect families? How does this affect friendships and, and relationships when somebody sort of wakes up and says, Hey, I'm not so sure I'm buying this anymore. Um, you know, what, what's going to happen? What, what in your experience has been the actual fallout in relationships between people? Right. Well, so (laughs) people are discouraged from criticizing, uh, the teachings and, um, and there's real strong spiritual pressure not to do so. Verses are used out of context to, to silence criticism, to say, you know, from the Psalms, touch not my prophets, do them no harm. And these kind of verses are thrown around. If somebody does speak up, often they're, they're demonized. And what happens is it, it depends on who's bringing the teachings in. So churches, many churches have split over this movement because maybe a pastor starts bringing in these teachers. And so people either have to go along with the pastor, uh, or they leave, um, or, or, you know, families are splitting over these teachings because, uh, people, a family members will become concerned about these teachings and other family members will be in these teachings. And so, um, they'll, they'll say, well, you're not following the apostles and prophets, you're unspiritual. And they'll, they'll view their family members as less spiritual. And, um, and so it will cause, it's caused divorces, it's caused real, um, uh, broken relationships between parents and their children, um, 
and so there's real devastation in, in relationships in this movement. So let me ask you one question that just kind of came to my mind just now. If someone came to you and said, you know, if you can't find one heresy in this group, if you can't show me an actual heretical teaching, then I don't see any reason to not be unified with the people in the movement. So how would you respond to, to someone who might say something like that? Well, here's the thing. There are degrees of error. That's true. And, you know, um, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, you can point to outright heresy in these groups that put them outside the Christian faith. Um, with the NER, it's, it's, a, it's um, the error that is there. It might not be that they are denying the deity of Christ or the, the Trinity, although some people in the NER do deny the Trinity. Um, but um, it might not be that, but there can still be very serious error that really hurts people in their, their walk with Christ and then it diminishes their spiritual growth. It causes this type of division we're talking about in churches and among families. And so as an example I like to give is, um, you know, probably most of your listeners would agree that, um, that teaching uh, that it's okay to uh, be a practicing homosexual and and be a Christian is wrong. Right. But the thing is, a lot of the people who promote those teachings do affirm all the essential doctrines of the faith. The, right. the gay affirming Christians yes. will say, we believe in the deity of Christ. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in the gospel. Mm -hmm. We believe in all of these things. And so, and, but most of your listeners would probably say, but that's wrong. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's, right. That's way off. And in a similar way, the NAR teachings, you know, they may not be denying any of these essential teachings, but it doesn't mean that there aren't very dangerous teachings that can get people really off track. Right. Okay. So I have to ask you about this. Uh, as I was preparing for this podcast and doing some research and just doing some of my own thinking, I started to see some tweets come down my newsfeed claiming that the NAR is not even a real thing, that it's just a fabrication from really overly critical people. Um, and so I, I specifically Michael Brown was tweeting a lot and even made a video basically claiming that NAR doesn't exist. And so I have to ask you about that. So can you sum up what is Michael Brown saying? And then how, how would you go about answering what he's claiming? Sure. Well, first, uh, for those who don't know, Michael Brown is a respected, uh, charismatic radio host and author. Commendably, he has taken a strong biblical stand on, um, moral issues, uh, like same-sex marriage, but lately, as you mentioned, he's been dedicating his efforts to uh, debunking criticisms of the new apostolic reformation and, and really been dismissing uh, those who critique the NAR as conspiracy theorists. Um, he's, he keeps referring to the movement as the so-called new apostolic reformation and, and has described it in a, a recent show as a bizarre false narrative about this worldwide conspiratorial NAR, saying it's just a myth. And um, he, he said that he's personal friends with many of the people who are identified as leaders in this movement, such as Bill Johnson, Cheon, and Mike Bickle, and that they've never even heard of this movement. So, so how could it be what the critics are saying it is, is, is what Michael Brown is saying. And so during a recent show he did on the NAR, uh, he, he said some very good things, I have to say, about specific NAR teachings he disagrees with. Uh, such as the teaching that NAR revelation can supplement scripture. 
uh, he, he took a stand against that. Um, I'm glad he disagrees with those teachings, but the mistake he's made, I think, in all of his recent shows and interviews about the NAR is that I've never heard him give a clear, tight definition of what the NAR is. And, be, and because he hasn't provided that clear definition, he hasn't recognized that the leaders he defends are, in fact, a part of the NAR. And, and so it's important that when people recognize what the NAR is, that it's the belief in the present-day church offices of apostle and prophet, that those offices govern the church, then it becomes very clear that the NAR is a very large movement that's been documented by church growth researchers, uh, sociologists. Um, and, and so that's the, that's the key thing to recognize, the defining belief of NAR, you know, of NAR that sets it apart from Protestant Christians throughout church history, including classical Pentecostals and Charismatics, is the belief in these present-day governing offices. And, um, and so once that's recognized, you know, all you have to do is go to the website of uh, Bethel Church in Redding, California, Bill Johnson's church, and read their statement that their church embraces the biblical government of apostles and prophets, or read or read Bill Johnson's writings. As far as uh, Cheon goes, he's chancellor of the Wagner of Wagner University, which was founded by C. Peter Wagner, and has it's described itself as a school to raise up leaders for the new apostolic reformation. And you can go on their website right now and see that they offer courses on the new apostolic reformation and training people to be apostles. Um, Cheon also governs a very large apostolic network, uh, of over 25,000 churches and ministries that have come under his apostolic authority. And people can just go to his website, uh, harvest international ministry and, and look at that network. Um, Mike Bickle, who, uh, you know, uh, Michael Brown has, has also defended through the years. He has taught that the offices of apostle and prophet are today, uh, that, that they're being restored for the end time and, and that they have an essential role in the unfolding of God's end time plans for earth. Uh, he's taught, he's taught about these offices in his very popular book, Growing in the Prophetic. Um, he himself has claimed that Jesus told him during a visit, uh, he took to heaven, that if he was faithful, he'd be among a group of 35 imminent apostles, uh, govern governing apostles to rise up in the last days. Um, so it's, it's, you know, just a little bit of research, uh, will show that, that all these guys, uh, embrace the idea that apostles and prophets are to govern the church today. And, and I really want to stress that that teaching is very distinctive through church history, that, that there are governing apostles and prophets for today. Um, and, and so, and so that's how I'd respond to, to some of the claims he's making. And how, where did the term come from? New Apostolic Reformation uh, was a term coined by C. Peter Wagner, and mm -hmm. he he said he came up with this term to describe uh, this this movement he saw where churches were embracing the idea that there are contemporary offices of apostle, and so it, it was that was a term he came up with, and now that term is not used by everyone today. Um, but whether you use the term or not, uh, the question is, does a leader embrace the idea that the governing offices of apostle and prophet are for today? That, that's the real issue, not whether you use that term or not. 
And you mentioned earlier that NAR proponents hold a, a unique eschatology, a unique belief about the end times, the last days, the return of Christ. But Michael Brown is saying, you know, just to be fair, he's saying that's not true. They most some of these guys are premillennial, just like he is, which means they believe that. Jesus is going to return ushering in a, a literal thousand-year reign. So he's saying that's really not true, that they have this unique eschatology. So do you want to elaborate a little more on that? Okay, as far as understanding NAR eschatology goes, I recommend people uh, look at a book written by some NAR, NAR authors. It's called Victorious Eschatology by Harold Eberl and Martin Trench. And basically what it shows is that the NAR leaders fall into two camps— Premillennial and postmillennial, um, but they disagree. So they disagree as to exactly how much of God's kingdom can be brought in before Christ returns. Uh, you know, postmillennialists in the NAR would say they can bring in the entire kingdom before Christ returns. Premillennialists, like Mike Bickle, would say uh, no, a significant portion of God's kingdom can be brought in, but not all of it. But what unites them all is their efforts to bring God's kingdom to earth under the leadership of present-day apostles and prophets who are giving new strategies that, that the church needs to bring God's kingdom to earth. So they, this NAR eschatology is called victorious eschatology because the NAR leaders see the church as uh, being endowed with so much supernatural power that through their miraculous powers— they will be able to bring God's kingdom to earth in the end time to whatever degree they think that's possible. Um, but it's through, it's through the su their supernatural powers that, that they will be able to bring God's kingdom to earth. So, so that's the term victorious eschatology. And I mentioned that Mike, like you said, that Mike Bickle says that, you know, their powers will grow to such an extent that they can actually, through their prayers, call down the plagues of God that are described in the book of Revelation against the Antichrist and his kingdom. So, so there's an example of how that plays out. All right. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about these big events that NAR has, these prayer and fasting unity type events. What, what are they? What goes on there? And who, who's coming to these events and what are they all about? Right. So, Lou Engle is well known for organizing these big unity prayer and fasting rallies and in, in large stadiums throughout the United States. He recently did one called Awaken the Dawn in Washington, D.C. And the idea is that um, basically uh, he's seen as a prophet in this movement and God gives him strategies to bring God's kingdom to earth. So at the Wake and the Adon event, for example, there was also a special women's event that was held in conjunction with that event in Washington, D.C. And, you know, he claimed that God had given revelation that uh, women were to be key to a revival that's about to come to America uh, and that they would birth a new Jesus movement. And so at this event, he asked all the, the women present to get down in their birthing positions on the ground and um, at, in, at, in a prophetic act to show that they were giving birth to a new Jesus movement in our nation. And the idea is that, that so they give these new revelations, they, they do this prophetic act, which will bring about revival in our nation, and, um, at all, and then which will bring about an increase in miraculous power, which will bring about this global revival, revival I was talking about. But a lot of people who take part in these events 
they just think, oh, we're just coming together and praying fast for revival for a nation. Who could be against that? And what they don't realize is the leaders of these events, the even the act, the, like this prophetic act that Lou Engle had these women doing at this event, these are all very explicit NAR teachings and practices, but, but many people don't realize that. Mm. So let me ask you, the, these events, these big prayer and unity events, what, what's the lasting fruit from it? What, you know, has there been something where they've prayed for something and then it, it came to pass and it had some great purpose for the, you know, the, the furthering of the gospel? What, what's the fruit of these events? Well, I, they'd probably say that something happened <laughs> or at least something in the spiritual realm happened. Um, but that's another interesting thing about this movement is there's always a reason why revival hasn't happened yet. There's always a new strategy. Oh, that's why revival hasn't come yet, because we didn't know that there aren't just apostles. There are also apostles in the workplace. So once we once we start to recognize that there are apostles in the workplace, then finally the revival will come. Then, you know, and, and there's always another reason, but that makes sense because this movement is all about the new revelations that these apostles and prophets are, are continually bringing. And so people are always hanging on for the next revelation and hopefully we'll forget, you know, about the last one. <laughs> right, right. So, um, one of the things that I think can be kind of confusing about this movement is from time to time, you'll have someone like a Francis Chan or the former leader of the Southern Baptist Convention, or even as we talked about earlier, Dr. Michael Brown, who seems to sort of come alongside uh, NAR churches, linking arms with them, unifying with them for certain prayer events or things like this. What do you do with that? Because to me, it seems like it's pretty clear that this movement is not biblical, um, but then there are people that seem to hold to, to traditional biblical teachings that seem okay with it. So how do you make sense of that? You know, what, what I've always assumed is that, is that these people haven't really dug deep into the teachings and that just like gather people, they hear prayer and fasting. Who could argue against that? Revival for our nation. Who could argue against that? It just really haven't, haven't done their homework maybe and, and dug deep. Although I do know Francis Chan has said that on, on stage that many people warned him not to go to IHOP. He said that in an IHOP conference, International House of Prayer, and that he still felt that he was to go. And, and he's been back multiple years um, there. And, you know, I, 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 I respect Francis Chan and I like him, but I find that disappointing because it makes it much harder uh, to speak out and warn people about the dangers of this movement when people like him are lending their credibility to the movement. Right, right. And and so recently they have announced that they came out with their, their own Bible translation. It's called the Passion Translation. So I'm sure you know a lot about this. So tell us about the Passion Translation. Who First of all, who translated it? Um, what is, is it a paraphrase? Is it literal translation? What's the deal with this Passion Translation Bible? So the Passion Translation is this new NAR translation of the Bible, which... Um, is produced by one sole individual. His name is Brian Simmons. He's an apostle in this movement. And um, he claims that Christ appeared to him and personally and commissioned him to produce this new translation of the Bible. He said it's, it is so that it will capture kind of God's heart and emotion in a way that other translations don't. And, you know, he will, he has claimed that he has, has received, um, some of 
the translations through direct revelation directly from God. He's um, he's acknowledged that he's not a scholar in the biblical languages. Yeah, I was going um, to ask that. Is he a Hebrew and Greek scholar? No, he's not. Uh, he's been a few years, some years, I forget how many exactly, working with New Tribes Missions um, as, you know, with with them. But um, he does not have the credentials and it, to produce, a tr- you know, a, a work like this. And also m- all the other translations of the Bible, like the NIV, the NASB, these are produced by teams of large teams of scholars um, who, you know, have command of the biblical languages. And, and this is just him. And he claims he has an editorial team that reviews his work, but he he will not reveal who these uh, members of his editorial team are, despite repeatedly being asked to do so. Interesting. So um, it's very troubling. And so he's taken passages of scripture and... Um, it's not even really right to call it a paraphrase because he just will completely change the meaning and take NAR teachings and, and put them into the text. Hmm. And, um, and when challenged, um, sometimes he'll go back and, and change them later with no explanation because he gets caught, you know? Um, wow. and so I, I, in the past I've, I've shown how he's, he's done this and then he'll change it and then put out a new edition of his translation with no explanation for why he changed it or anything. But, um, it's very disturbing. <laughs> yeah, that is disturbing. And, you know, it's especially home for me because I love to geek out on translations, like how, how it all comes about. I love textual criticism and all of that stuff. And, I think I was listening recently to a a lecture by Peter Williams, who I think is on the team for the ESV Bible. And he was talking about how this team of scholars will go back and forth and back and forth just on one word, like, like just trying to discern the meaning of one word in the text. And so when you think about this one guy who has no credibility in that field, translating from some kind of message from heaven. That is really scary. That is, that is super scary stuff. And what's really scary is how popular his translation is. It's endorsed and promoted by uh, Bill Johnson, other leading NAR apostles and prophets. It's used by them. They preach from the pulpit. Bill Johnson preaches from the pulpit with Mm -hmm. it. And, um, and if you go on Amazon, you can see how well it's selling. It's selling extremely well. It would make many other authors jealous. (laughs) Um, and that's very disturbing. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been kind of poking around on your blog and by the way, I just have to say for the listeners that Holly's blog is incredible. It's really, really thorough, well-researched. I mentioned that before, you know, definitely go there and, and read some of these articles that she's written. But Holly, you mentioned that you went to the Firestarters class at Bethel Reading, and I was kind of curious what that was about. What, what was that experience like for you? Right, and I actually mentioned it a little bit earlier when I went to Bethel Church. Oh, that was the one. Yeah, that was their adult, that's their flagship adult Sunday school class. And what it is, is it's, I forget how many weeks now, I think it's like 12 weeks or something. But basically, the idea is that not everybody can attend their their full-time Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, where people go for up to three years to learn how to work miracles, basically. Um, and so because of that, they wanted to get a real condensed version of the material they teach in their school. And, and so it's like about a 12 week course. And, um, and in that course, they, 
teach you how to, you know, learn how to prophesy. Like that's, that's what I was mentioning that people would come forward to the front and just say whatever came to mind and as a prophetic word. And, um, it would be amazing to me in that class, how far off the prophetic work could be. And they would still, everybody seemed so impressed by it. For example, uh, a young woman would stand in the front of the room and go, you know, God, God's giving me the name. I, I can't remember exactly now, but it was something like Daryl and somebody go, well, my name is Dan. And, Oh, okay. You know, and it was, and it, it was like that it was. And, um, and so, so it was in this class where people come and people from around the world were attending this class. Um, people at my own table where I was sitting, wow. I think were from China and Canada and so people come from around the world to attend Bethel Reading and, and then take this class and they're encouraged to take this class back home and start, start the fire starters class in their own churches. Well, and I'm just kind of curious, like, what is it like to be you in one of those classes? Like, do they know who you are? Like, do, do they know why you're there? No, uh, it's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to be an observer in a class like that because people want to keep coming up to you. And, and if you're not, if you're not manifesting, if you're not laughing in the spirit or kind of jerking or mm. doing something to show that you're under the influence of the spirit, people will come up and put their hands on you and mm. keep them there. Because they 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 think they're serving you right, by right. Um, you know imparting the Holy Spirit to you, and so <laughs> oh, yeah. you have to very kindly say you know please that's okay please <laughs> yeah <laughs> please you don't need to put your hands on my shoulder but thank you <laughs> right right so let me ask you if somebody's listening and they're wanting to know you know how can I recognize this if this is happening at my church or somebody I'm listening to. You know, are there buzzwords? Are there kind of key phrases that you're going to hear typically in the NAR world? What what are what are some of those things to listen for? Yes, definitely. Um, buzzwords to listen for, or look for are, of course, apostles, prophets, the adjectives apostolic prof or prophetic. Um, fivefold ministry is a big one that refers to the teaching that God has given five formal offices to govern the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, which they get from Ephesians 4.11. Um, bringing heaven to earth is a phrase to watch for. Another phrase is covering. And often that's kind of a, um, instead of saying that you're supposed to submit to apostles and prophets, it's kind of a softer way of referring to them as you're covering. They provide spiritual protection and blessing to you when you come under them. Um, fathers and mothers are often kind of, um, words they use that are a little softer than saying apostles. Um, they'll say, oh, she's a father, she's a mother. And it, it sounds, you know, less overbearing. Um, and also generals is another word. And often when they use the generals, what they mean is, is referred to uh, people who are apostles in the movement. So those are buzzwords. And then of course, practices to look for are healing rooms, 24 seven prayer rooms, um, uh, or courses or books that teach people how to develop supernatural powers and then schools of supernatural ministry. Those, uh, there's, there's a well-known one at Bethel church in Reading. And so churches throughout the nation have been starting their own schools of supernatural ministry where people go, they pay money, they learn to work miracles and they often use the curriculum that comes out of Bethel Reading. 
So, I'm, you know, I have to ask this because I'm listening to you, to you talking and I'm thinking, well, prayer, you know, 24-7 prayer and fasting sounds like a really good thing, you know, so. Right. I'm glad you you said that. I was thinking that even <laughs> as I, I went on through that list. Um, yeah, so obviously prayer is great. And if people want to pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nonstop in shifts, that's great. Um the problem is that the idea of 24-7 prayer in the NAR is it's a new revelation that has been given to the church that the church must engage must engage in 24-7 prayer in order for God's kingdom to be able to come to earth. And and so and then prayer is often redefined in this movement too, not as asking God to do things, but as proclaiming or declaring what God will do and that your words actually have creative power to create reality by merely speaking them. So that's part of that 24-7. Kind of like the bossing God around kind of prayers, right? Right. And and we're, your words like God have creative power. And so, and then, and then what I mentioned about uh, Mike Bickle's in time, views of the end time, he believes that these prayer rooms, um, people will be in these prayer rooms worldwide in the last days all together calling down um, God's plagues on um, on unbelievers in in the order that they're listed in Revelation. Right. And and it's like what you're describing is just so many things that are just extra biblical. You know, there's no command to do these things. There's no, uh, there's no model for us doing these things. And that can really kind of get scary. That can get scary quick, can it? Right. And, and also, you know, they, they teach in this movement that anyone can develop per, the gift of prophecy or anyone can learn to heal. And so even historically Pentecostals and Charismatics, you know, you say God does give people, they would say God gives people these spiritual gifts, but God decides who gets these gifts. And right. these aren't gifts that you can learn to develop in a classroom setting or by reading a book. And, um, and they're not on demand. You can't, you can't prophesy on demand, right. <laughs> uh, do a cold, do a reading and a it's psychic, a gift. Somebody, right. Somebody walks into a psychic or a, what you make look like a psychic booth and you say you're giving them a prophetic word on demand, you know? And so that does get scary. It, it opens up the door, I think, to demonic influence coming in. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So let me ask you something that can get a little tricky. So uh, you know, typically, like we talked about, NAR churches will affirm the essential doctrines of the faith. You know, of course, in practice, that can play out a little bit differently. But there's a lot of talk about unity, and a lot of unsuspecting Christians they they hear that word unity and they say, "Yeah, you know, we want to be unified as brothers and sisters in Christ." So, I want to ask your opinion: Is is this something we can overlook? Can we be in unity with uh, NAR churches as brothers and sisters in Christ? Oh, right. Well, first, first to the point about um, unity, um, it should be clear to people that the unity in this movement is unity under the apostles. And so when they talk about unity, uh, you, you have to recognize that that the only unity in this movement that comes is is when you come under the authority of the apostles and receive their revelation. So it's not it's not unity like other Christians may be thinking of unity. And, yeah. and let me let me just pop in here real quick and okay. ask a question. So a typical like non NAR church that rents a van and goes on down to the Awaken the Dawn event with members of their church, you would actually advise them not to do that, right? Is because that... these events are just full of NAR teachings and practices, and then they're led by NAR leaders, and so they're in NAR they're NAR events through and through. Although people don't realize that because the vocabulary that is being used is words 
just like other Christian Jews, like prayer and fasting, but they don't understand that those are being given additional meaning by the NAR leaders. Well, if you want to know more about this subject, go to Holly's website, which is spiritoferror.org. She's got tons of blog posts on all kinds of uh, aspects of this movement. Get her books. I just got to plug those books again. Uh, a New Apostolic Reformation, A Biblical Response to a Worldwide Movement. And if you want you know, a bit of a, a, a shorter, more concise read, more of a flyover that doesn't go quite as deep in the weeds, you can get her other book called God's Super Apostles encountering the worldwide prophets and apostles movement. Um, so Holly, as we kind of close today, let me ask you a real practical question. So if, if people are listening and they have friends, families, loved ones who are kind of swept up in this movement or being kind of drawn in by it or influenced by it without realizing, what is the best way that we can shine the light of the gospel on this for our friends um, and, you know, in a way that, that will not turn them off, not them make them feel attacked, but will really draw them into the truth of the gospel? Right. I think, first of all, just making people aware that this movement even exists, because as you mentioned at the beginning of this program, uh, most people don't even know it exists, even though they're influenced by it. So educating people about this movement, um, if they would read books about the movement, that would be great. But um, and, and then um, asking people to take the teachings and and ask them to support those teachings with scripture and, and to do so gently and kindly with respect because the leaders in this movement will often tell their followers that the people that are against this movement are mean spirited and they're, they're, you know, motivated by a demon. So if you're very kind and, and gentle in your challenging of their beliefs, even that might even undermine in their mind, some of the things their leaders have been telling them, and then maybe make them start to question some of the other things they've been told too. Well, Holly, thanks so much for coming on. I'm just thrilled that you made the time to come on and have this conversation with me. It was just a, a total pleasure to talk to you today. You too, Elisa. Thanks so much. listening to this podcast and would like to sign up to receive my blog posts and podcasts by email, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button. Or you can simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers podcast on iTunes. 